Spread the fire, welcome back to SMWX. And today I am joined by economist extraordinaire and founding director of Nascent's Advisory, Tantipai. Um, guys, thanks so much for joining us on SMWX. That's, that's really good to be here. I feel quite honored actually. I mean, I've seen the people who've come before. So. <laughs> it's like, thanks for having me. Well, not only are you a well-known figure on on the South African public landscape, Tandi, but uh, you also comment on various SMWX videos on Twitter, so it's the perfect fit. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I just wanted to say before we get started, thank you all for taking SMWX to over 15,000 subscribers on YouTube now. So we appreciate the love and let's, let's, let's get to 20,000 soon. Um, Plenty to come to our conversation, we wanted to have a, a chat today about the South African economy, try to decode what has been happening in this economy this year. There's no one better to do it with than you. And, you know, let me start because, you know, we'll go into different themes of growth, of unemployment, and of the state of public finances at the moment. But I suppose in this year, which, which has been quite the earthquake of an economic year, how bad is it? Look, I think it's quite bad. One, um, you know, one of the things I like to do is to, you know, obviously many of us read the data and, you know, all the research papers, but really to put a, a face to it is usually a very difficult thing to do, you know, because obviously mm. there's no research in sort of going out into a township and then saying you want to see for yourself. But mm. I think for me, it's about, you know, it's being speaking to friends, speaking to colleagues, people that are relatively well-to-do um, and, you know, who've done well in their lives and actually listening to them actually articulate how difficult things have been uh, and also, you know, sharing experiences in terms of the people that they work with. So there's an abundance uh, of these stories and I think many of them are really, really quite horrific. But I think you really have to, uh, you know, not to, you know, to resist it, to understand, I think for me, the worst part about it is to realize how wrong um, some of us were, especially for myself, about how things, how bad things could get, uh, you know, and I think this thing has, um, has really been sh uh, shaky because also it tested some of the many theories and I mean, we'll talk about it, but certainly for me mm. to understand and to be in a position now to say, look, we thought certain things and we thought, you know, even for somebody like me who thinks there's an eye for a, a, at least a, a sensitivity, uh, mm. for justice and you know, for equality to help sure. a sense of how bad things can be. And I think that's for me mm. the thing. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's mm. been, it's, it's true that it's hit uh, the poor even much harder than it we could have anticipated. It's been a very bad year. Um, but also, I guess at the same time with that, there's been an opportunity to reflect. And I hope that we will be able to look, as we look ahead, we'll do better. <clears throat> Absolutely. And um, I think one interesting place to start is, is just at the high level of growth in South Africa. Um, we've been limping along at around 1% uh, even before the crisis. But of course, now with COVID-19, we got some reports that, uh, that, that you know, were the worst that we've had since gathering data. Take us through what this year has done to uh, GDP in South Africa. So let me start here. I think that the main thing, we've had this problem and I, um, and I hope, you know, if I repeat it enough times, it will start to sink. We have had this problem about the fact that we look at GDP and we say GDP, if we grew, if the economy grew, 
then we would be able to create jobs, right? Because actually it's about defining what the problem is. And I think, you know, many of us have said, you know, it's the triple challenges or the triple devils of poverty, uh, unemployment, and inequality. And in many ways, uh, and then we thought if we grow, uh, this will help. But, 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 but I think there's an important thing to recognize about this growth and employment because we think we want people to work and when they get jobs, they are able to earn, uh, you know, decent, a decent living. And because of that, they you know at some point, hopefully we will, you know, close the gap of inequality. And we think that will come from growth. But if one realizes that that's all economics, that's, you know, all the stuff of the 2000s, because that speaks to the so-called trickle down effect. That actually what you want is for how do you think about growing? What growth really is, is how we actually gather, because it's called growth domestic product, which basically we actually aggregate what we produce. In order for you to produce something, uh, hopefully, especially if you're actually trying to defeat unemployment, you want people to be at work. And in this country, um, one of the biggest problems, of course, is that people are not at work. Uh, we've got millions and millions of people, depending on how you want to define unemployment, that are actually are not at work, not in school or uh, in education, and certainly have given up. And one of the things about that, that means that how can you expect to grow uh, an economy if people are not at work? And on what basis can you say we're going to aggregate uh, that is improving every year when every year actually we are not getting people to work because it is about people's efforts what they do on a daily basis that we aggregate. So people building houses, planting corn, um, whatever that they are doing and that they're producing, that's what we call actually uh, output. And in that output, if we produce more every year, then we talk about a growing economy. What we've been trying to do is to imagine that we're first going to grow the, the economy, and so we're first going to grow production and hopefully then bring people into that. That's an equation that doesn't work. But I, I, I want to say why that is an attractive proposition, why it has been. It's because actually we look at our economy from the perspective of investment or investors. Because if one, you want somebody to invest in your country, they want to see that you are a growing country, so you've got GDP that's growing, and then they'll come and invest. And hopefully that's the thing. And so we've looked at that because we've been hoping that somebody will invest, and so when they build a factory, then our people will come and work. And so that's the perspective we've employed. But we know that actually that there's a number of dynamics on which uh, we are tilted away from the investment, but that we can have that discussion. So I think the mm. first part really is to actually make this argument very strongly that we aren't going to grow in the World Bank, um, including the IMF, have made this point that actually what happens is this, that the one thing that is a detractor to growth is the exclusion of people. And I think in many ways, what we need to be discussing is the exclusion of people, so the unemployment, and why we have the unemployment. So why are people excluded? Why are people's efforts and talents not being engaged in the manner they should in order for us to deal with people being able to eat, people being able to clothe themselves, to have a good education and a better life? And so that's for me the main thing. And I think those answers are the critical things because then if we were to actually just weigh into why is it that so many people are unable to do things, to produce, to be able then to be employed as it were. And I think that's the main thing. And so I, I, I want to start with this, that we're therefore not growing. Our growth problem is not, we don't have an, a growth problem. We have an employment problem that therefore leads us to a growth problem. And we have to interrogate why that problem is. And so I think across the board, and I think one of the key things therefore, um, and I, as I said to you earlier, one of the things um, that we learned during COVID is that, you know, even at the level where we, people like myself are saying, you know, leave the people in the informal sector because they are doing something with their hands. They are using their hands to produce. Even at that level, we found the vulnerabilities that people are under once the economy was closed because clearly it turned out that actually even 
doing for yourself depends much on this bigger economy and on the constraints of what the so-called economy works like. Because those people mm-hmm. still, their service, they don't want to have their own economic environment in which actually if you closed Soweto down and encircled it, that the people have efforts to work for themselves, to exchange amongst each other, they have savings, they've got mm-hmm. ways in which to outside the bigger economy. So, and I think that's one of the things. And so many of us are very wrong about the idea of a social system um, that, or at least an, you know, a system that really is built on actually even protecting those who work for themselves. We didn't want to think about that. We said, leave them alone. But leaving them alone was a bad thing because we should have built a, a social system uh, that's based on our economic mm-hmm. system and the structure. So I hope I answered that's, that first question. I think that's the no, main no, that, thing that I... That is, and, and uh, that's a really interesting insight that, you know, the informal economy, which, you know, had its own creativity and its own innovations, is, is actually still linked in a fundamental way to what happens in, in, in the, the, the formal the economy. Um, so, yeah. but before, before um, I dive into some of those ideas, I'm really interested in, like, the reversal of uh, growth and employment as well, because... As you mentioned, people often put the one before the other. Um, Just in terms of describing where we are, um, I think that that's really interesting because I think a lot of people know like, okay, things must be bad. They saw some tweet somewhere which said, you know, um, the economy contracted, you know, by a lot. Um, What, what, what has happened with output and production? You know, even if it is um, not the best indicator for um, economic health. Um, Just take us through like what what really has happened this year in terms of even just that that, uh, limited indicator. Sure, so I mean, I think that the main thing, so of course, what if you you take the argument that we're making, then mainly it is that people have to be at work. So, you know, people have to be at the factories, they've got to be on the factory floor, they've got to be mm. driving taxis, because that's what you cultivate. They've got to be going to work, they've got to be cleaning houses, whatever, all the measurements of actually, of, uh, of output, or effort that we use. And so when we closed the economy, as we did in the lockdown, nobody could go and, you know, do that. Except maybe some people in, my, in the money sector, some people in agriculture, where they say, look, and in the health sector. So in, that, in some of these sectors, but for the rest, uh, and the majority of the economy had to stay at home and don't and do nothing, and that therefore meant exactly because if people are not producing, they're not going to work. Then obviously there's no output. And so what has been the the main feature of this um, has been the collapse completely of economic activity and therefore growth. And that collapse is actually quite interesting in the sense that when we think about it, really, it is now about also about thinking about obviously a recovery. So now. We took people out. Usually what happens is that we always imagine, of course, you know, it's like a start a car. You stop it, then it doesn't move. If you, you know, switch off the ignition, and then you will switch on the ignition and start driving it, and then suddenly it's going to drive. This is actually something quite different because, of course, during the time we were quiet, the economy was closed, um, other things happened, including some of the changes we've seen around how people, for example, consume, how people spend, how people say, because people then had to find different ways, including working from home. So one of the things that has happened is that we shut it down and to reignite it now is going to be a whole different other goal game because actually mm. while things are going, we learn to do things differently. So you and I, for example, we have had this discussion face to face, but that's not going to right. be. So basically you would have got into my car and come to see you or you'd have got into your car and come to see me, you'd have stopped at a petrol station, so bought some petrol and all of that. So mm. that as we think about it now going forward, 
that activities, those activities that make uh, you know, people work uh, have now been constrained. Uh, mm. People don't want as much office space as they would be using. So that means that people who've been working in offices are not going back to work in the numbers that they were before the crisis. Um, so there's a number of things. I mean, I was speaking to a friend, actually, uh, a colleague yesterday, and he was saying, well, mm. and if I had two cars, he sold the one car because they will never need two cars. And that's actually meaningful. Yeah. So what happened is that basically we shut down many industries that we may never open up, or at least we downscale parts of industry that will never open mm. up. Uh, mm. You can see it in gas companies are now sort of retrenching people because they know that many cars will never be used again. And so now what has happened, really, apart from the fact that we've contracted, it is now to reimagine how we're going to restart it in the full sense. So this so-called recovery. Uh, and I, and I like to argue that we are not going to say recovery because clearly um, things have changed fundamentally. And it also speaks really to, as I say, if we think about the, you know, the, uh, the people who work in offices, those people who support the ways in which we've been working before, well, now that they've changed, those people are not going back to work. And so we have to think about what really has happened to us at a time, of course, uh, that we've already been struggling. I mean, when we entered uh, this, this lockdown, the economy was already in decline. Um, we know that, you know, we had already been contracting. I think for me, the thing that concerns me the most is the thinking around, therefore, what happened to us? And, when you, and the question that when you ask what happened, I think part of what happened is exactly that we basically were shown for what we really are, um, you know, the vulnerability of so many people uh, to, you know, to crisis. Uh, that has been shown. The weakness in terms of the connectedness of certain people to the ways in which actually normal economies would work. And so I think what has happened now is that we've been left naked and we've got to find new ways of restructuring. It is going to be a difficult thing. And I'm not so sure our politicians um, have the full appreciation of what really you know, has happened. As you say that, um, and alluding to, to what you mentioned earlier, it makes me think, like you're saying, of, of, of people in a similar situation to us, you know, this aspiring class of young black professionals, uh, creatives, uh, digital strategists, lawyers, even medical practitioners. And, you know, this, this sense that our generation was on a fundamentally different economic path to generations before us. Yeah. And suddenly, um, people are having to confront uh, this crisis and realize that they, they're one paycheck away from, from poverty, from disaster, from inequality. Absolutely, and I think that, you know, I mean, I think you speak particularly about creatives and you see the restructuring, for example, of the ways in which our creative industries are built. Uh, in other countries, we can build a creative industry on the basis of the people who spend directly on those products, you know. So uh, in this country, it's based mainly on the people, on, on, on companies, on brands that want the expenditure. So basically, you pay the artists so that you can expect, the, you know, the, the, the expenditure. So, for example, you uh, know, a communications company like MTN will sponsor big shows because they want the consumer to come and interact with their, with their brand. And so that's how many of our creative industry has worked uh, across the board with the in, in performing industry and sometimes very much even in the, um, in the fine arts. Now, that situation has changed completely, right? Because now these people are, are you know, first of all, it's difficult to perform. So as uh, you know, MTN does not see why you actually, because you're not going to bring them that. So that industry itself, whereas if we now were to open up tomorrow and say, look, COVID is gone, and people started to do show, would they immediately be able to recover? And I think that's the difficulty that we face because actually then the consumers, the pockets of consumers are not very strong. And it makes the argument very, very difficult. 
um, mm. to sustain. So our young people have been finding new ways of doing things. I mean, I think that this is a part that I found quite exciting because you could always, at some point, say, look, uh, we are creating new things. We are coming up with new digital technologies. Um, I'm, I'm working on a, uh, on a project now that is paid for by the ILO with uh, NEDVAC and on the future of work, recent work in particular. And one of the things that comes out there very clearly and um, that actually sort of concerns me is even when we think about the fourth industrial revolution, what, one part where we thought young people would participate is that it relies mainly, of course, on, say, for example, think about Uber and Texas, on creating products that can actually tap into the potential of the economy. By economy, I mean other South Africans. Now that that has been almost demolished, you want to think, where is that going to go? What clever ways do the young people have to find to actually find themselves in this new economy? Uh, and the rest of the world is not sitting back at home because the platform on which we are talking is not even South African, right? And so what opportunities are there for young South Africans and to engage these new platforms so that can move forward. So these are the kind of conversations I think that we have to be realistic about, even for young people. Where are young people now best suited? And how do you support their activities? How do you support their creativity? How do you support their initiative? Um, and we are still very much stuck on, on government you know, uh, programs that are speaking to you know, build a road, uh, you know, public works programs. That is not entirely connected to what we think the potential of young people is and how we may therefore uh, match those two things so that the young person then finds hope and opportunity and growth because we are still very much caught up in the old way of doing things. And I one suspects that, of course, we want, at a crisis, you want to run back to what you know, you know, like mm. what is coming, you've always known that, you know, building roads and infrastructure is the way forward. Uh, but it may not be, I mean, even uh, if it, I talk to somebody in the property sector, many young people thought, I'm going to go and be involved in student housing. I know many young people involved in student housing because they think that's where, you know, there's been a big deficit and they know student life. But now that many young people have learned um, that, you know, I mean, many universities have learned to, you know, people online. Uh, many of us have created um, teaching and learning online. Student housing may not be the way forward anymore because perhaps people are not, it's not going to be so important to go on campus. It's not going to be the center of how we do education. Again, that's taking out another industry and another potential for growth. So I think all yeah. of these things are important to consider and how we think about youth and youth uh, engagement. Let me put it, and I always think it's a big mistake to blame young people to say, look, they must show initiative. You can't show initiative when you, you know, the exposure to the world and the interactions on which we talk about is important. You know, the level of education, the exposure that is not there. So I think that uh, those in leadership, uh, those you and I who can maybe bring the information, are going to play a much bigger role than we thought we would play because we could have just let things be. Because the vulnerability of young people is immense, and one needs to think about that vulnerability in a much more serious way than we have. Other than I think the romanticized manner in which we think young people are resilient, they can do mm. things for themselves. The vulnerability is quite serious. It's not to say that, of course, there's no potential. It is to say, let's also recognize those vulnerabilities that are now facing them before. Uh, that yeah, it is. And, and it feels like we've been singing this song for, you know, as, as long as democracy <laughs> has been, you know, uh, in existence. Um, and this, this particular vulnerability around youth unemployment um, just seems to be spiraling further and further out of control. Um, <clears throat> speak a little bit about this question of, of unemployment and the particular vulnerabilities that, that young people face 
I mean, they already faced many, but now uh, yeah. it seems to have gone into overdrive. Overdrive. I, I'm always like, this is my belief um, that we want to talk about entrepreneurship because that's where people should go. Uh, mm-hmm. And and it's been a, and I think it's a romantic idea because that's your own thing. I mean, you've started a platform. You know how difficult it is. Wake up every day oh, yeah. to keep this going. Uh, <laughs> you know, to make it also, you know, to monetize it. These are important questions. So you've seen a lot of growth. I mean, I think from the first time it's with, um, you know, on WhatsApp and everything to where you are now, it's growth. But there's also other parts of it that require to actually, you know, over a period of time. And young people, of course, have the, you know, the, that particular, but then the networks it requires. Uh, you know, the response that you need for you to be able to get through it. And many times that is what is lacking for the majority of your answers. So uh, there is a bunch of us that clearly, I mean, I always tell people this idea that when I said in my own business, I was not a nobody. You know, I had been writing columns in, you know, in reading newspapers, I was doing well. But once I started that business and I had a career in big, you know, in leading banks, but when you start and you run something, it may, it's very, very difficult. You need mm-hmm. every piece of what you can and many answers Africans don't have that. Uh, and, you know, I don't have friends to call when my car runs out of petrol because I, you know, I haven't made money in four months. So therefore, you, those backups are not there. So that vulnerability is important because clearly, uh, while everybody may show initiative, they're vulnerable in the terms of which the society we have and we've inherited as young people uh, is, and as much younger people than we have inherited. So that vulnerability is important. Again, it is to say, how do we rethink that? I think it might take us, um, because then that unemployment, even at, at times where now people are thinking about, okay, who do we find, who do we hire? The people who are hiring young people at the moment are those who are looking for cheaper labor. So inexperienced right. people that might be cheaper, right? But for the most part, the people who actually get the jobs are older, much more stable, much more people feel trusted, um, mm. you know, mm. at hand. And you see that- 10 in- years experience. <laughs> and you see that in the numbers, you know, uh, you see it in the numbers of the un, you know, unemployment, of course, is more to younger people than it is to the older, more the employed are more the whiter males than the, you know, female, younger females. So those vulnerabilities exist, and that mm-hmm. is what defines us. And I think we are sometimes quite swayed by the, this idea of, you know, we've got potential, you know, that we are resilient. Resilience is, mm-hmm. you know, it's romantic, but it's not real because clearly you have to be resilient with something. And then I think uh, we've got to have to think about young people in particular, then, um, even in the sense of information, you know, if we think about the information, many young people struggled in the education system um, because, you know, you saw who in the higher student primary school were able to be, to participate in education during the lockdown. We certainly know who was doing well uh, in the, uh, in the jobs market during lockdown, in the higher education mm-hmm. system during lockdown. It wasn't everybody, you know, so young some right. people who went home had to go now and struggle to get online and get computers, or they live mm-hmm. in homes where they can't, they have five members of the family is noisy. I mean, there's some very funny videos of sure Sydney of people struggling to study mm-hmm. But I think that part of that though is what defines a really fantastic. So all of those things put together are part of the negative. But I think, I really do mm-hmm. believe this, that there are also like really some really beautiful opportunities and we can talk about that that we need but they're going to require i think the kind of um, the kind of movement that i think we saw in business for the kind of movement that almost has to almost sort of shake the system because otherwise it won't change so i think we need a level of um i wouldn't say activism as we were but almost a and then a, a formal an engagement and a cross-cutting engagement 
that allows us to sort of then fundamentally to look at everything that I've just described and say, how are we going to do the, the friendship to cover that's, all these vulnerabilities? That's interesting. You know, you, you caused me to think of the immense power that still does reside in the young South Africans that are in all different parts of this economy. And one thing we failed to do so far is harness all of um, our different talents and abilities, but also the financial power. It may not be huge, but that we, we have as a network and direct that. So there are many talented young people in the political sphere, but they, but they're always like, no, I don't want to get involved because there's no money. And then there are people in the economy who are like, oh, politics is so messed up. But it's like, why is there is there a way for for is there an alliance of, of young people somewhere in south africa to be built you know um, it might take a long time but that economic muscle you know should surely be doing more than just feeding the same old the same old economic interests. no absolutely there's no doubt about that uh, i think that i mean i don't know that there is but i think that there should be something like that that alliance i um i watched um I mean, again, through Fizzbusfall, when people were putting money together, yeah. people carrying care packs to young people to support, you know, the course. Because at that time, really, I think many of us, I think at the beginning, were not so convinced about where this movement was going. But I think once it started to show, everybody thought, let's go and support from academics to young people in business to older people. So I think it has to be clear, you know, where this thinking is. Uh, and it's time to think about it because... Also, nobody wants a country of young people who are constantly agitating or always on the streets because it's bad, it's, you know, it goes badly for every single person. Now, I don't want it to be a threat. I, I know many of you know, economists will say this a lot about you know, the instability and all of that actually has a negative impact on the investment and therefore growth and all of that. So clearly, you don't want to threaten people like that. But I think there should be a recognition that uh, the potential uh, for... I, I really do think, you know, people who want, to be, who want to be rich could be so rich in this country if we were to actually speak to the 60% unemployment rate of young people mm. for power. Because, because the rich countries in the world, as I said, when I think about it, the, re the reason um, people who are in the U.S., even if you've got a small following, you do really, really well because actually there's a consumer. And that consumer is able to take your product, whether you are an artist, whether you are an inventor of you know, pellet guns, basic things that make people rich in the developed world <laughs> uh, mm. are things that are not in our world because obviously so many people are unemployed, so many people have right. no means. And I think part of it is to say the business thinks about it, and that's the alliance I think we are going to think about it. Those of us who are aspiring, you know, entrepreneurs, or those who are entrepreneurs, those who are in the activist movement, getting together and saying, look, this thing can, can solve. And because I think known people don't understand this, I think South Africa has is immense because we're already a diversified economy, right? We've got a good banking system, we've got a mining sector, we've got an agricultural sector, we've got a construction sector. So it is not as if we are starting from scratch. There are already very strong bases on which to build, um, you know, economic activity and inclusion of people. It is just to us to include people, which is basically what we've always been trying to do. The end of apartheid was because of exclusion. And it is terrible that at this day and age, and age we are unable to foster inclusion of young people, of women. It really is, is a terrible thing that we need to think about. But again, I want to take it back to, we have to answer the question, what are the things that keep people out? And how do we deal with those impediments that have kept so many people out? And I think if we start to answer that question, we might 
uh, move to something. But as, as, I, as I think you're saying, it's going, to, it's going to take a lot of us talking to each other uh, and answering those questions. And stop being so path dependent, you know, assuming all the old things and thinking, you know, no, it's just infrastructure. I don't think it's not enough to say it's infrastructure. Mm. Or it's a poor education system. Those are simple for, you know, people must learn in their mother tongue. Things have changed rather fundamentally now. And we need to, uh, to focus on what are the things that we can do to unlock the potential of young people, potential of women uh, in particular, uh, to bring in people who live with disabilities uh, into the main economy. So inclusion is how we think about it in Sohar. What has been the force for exclusion? And therefore, how do we change that situation? Uh, and lastly, before I let you ask the question, is like the question we, I think, you know, many of us, we, we must do this. We need to think about this. I think also important is to discuss what we mean by we. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think you, you, you hit on something important there, which is conceiving of, of a new economy. Um, it feels like we've been banging our heads against the same wall for 30 years. Um, and, and the policymakers are just so set in their ways that they only know one thing. Yeah. But the alternatives that have been proposed, um, even though they tap into frust the frustration that, that is legitimate, I think, um, among many in the population, creating that alternative economic vision, which is appropriately inclusive, which is ultimately a stable economy, but one that's far more equal, that vision has not been articulated in a way that can convince enough people to, to follow a new path. I think so. Look, you know, um, if you look at the president's, um, I mean, I think the effort was commendable, but if you look at the... Uh, you at raised the Mong Ameli, not me, here. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mong comes up with a 500 billion rand uh, to support yeah. the economy and 200 billion of that was to support businesses that had already been doing well. It, it does reach, it said, this 200 billion rand guarantee fund is for businesses who were viable before the, before the crisis that already excluded lots and lots of businesses, especially of course for businesses and you will hear people from the Black Management Forum and the Black Business Council say, we didn't benefit from that because obviously, you know, we're always vulnerable and they already lost contact. That's one part. Yeah. Then the other part of that was about some 40 billion that was also to take care of, um, that was money that was um, for people who had work. So this is what the unemployment insurance fund. So half of the fund was already for those who are doing well in business or who have jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it left out, and then it said, well, maybe we should also give some money, take some money from the budgets that are not being spent by government, you know, the recalibration of budgets. That spoke very, very much to old money. And mm -hmm. then requiring government to know how to then recalibrate that to make sure that it actually is effective in a short period of time. Mm -hmm. That's also a business, uh, because that we know what that is. And then one of some of it is also tax breaks. Now, tax breaks, uh, if you're running on this, you learn this that you're, you know, if somebody gives you a tax break, it's about how much tax you pay. When you are running a business and you are small and you are struggling, tax is the last thing on your mind, you know, because it's a break, it's about liquidity. So you can't really access it because it's not cash that is given you. It's if you make money, don't pay us tax. Mm. That's what a tax break is. And many people were not making money. So the tax break thing was actually not. And I think that was what 110 
So you could you got over 400 billion, and you had not touched the people who are really vulnerable. You had only actually assisted the people who were doing well anyway. I think that because it's important, because that is actually about how we think about things. That because it actually is about the perspective and the ways in which we think about how to assist people. And then of course the other was to talk. The, un the unemployed money. It took us a long time because we had to figure out where they are and how to test if you're unemployed and all of that. So mm -hmm. that hundred so billion was just very, very difficult on a basic level of which to Then we've come up with a new program now that focuses on issues of infrastructure. And I say again, what is the infrastructure we're focusing on? I would like us to think about infrastructure that supports a young person who's outside the market sector. How do you relate it? Because a, a, a road between Mobile and Tata, if there is no trucks that are taking food from, you know, from, let's say, uh, you know, from an agricultural farm into Mtata way there's going to be put on an aeroplane on a cargo plane, we are not, those roads are not useful to those people. They must be useful to the extent that they support people's ability to work or support their efforts to produce. And so, and I, I'm quite worried about the fact that when we look at all of these efforts, it's very far. And there are some really good examples in which um, then we need to think about it. I mean, I was at the investment forum on tourism. One of the things that I think is important and I was trying to impress there was to say, in 2010, we built all of these BNBs and, you know, those data, but the BNB sector, so, and also the tourism infrastructure was built. Uh, we know we don't like to take risks on young people, but now that we've already taken the risks, the, the infrastructure has been built in terms of these tourism and this bed and breakfast, these halls, all of the infrastructure we built to, in, you know, uh, invite outsiders. Then how do we hand it over to young people and say, when we open this economy, prepare for, uh, and this, this current economy where South Africans are not able to leave. What interesting things can young people do to think creatively about how to use technology to match these assets, to bring a new wave of, say, of tourism both internal tourism and when we finally are fully open, external tourism on the basis that these things already exist. So we're not taking, we're not giving you new money. We're giving you existing assets. I can talk about this. We can talk about this in terms of the land that is being given uh, by Minister Tidiza. Again, we're not taking new risks because the land already belongs to us. How do we give it to you and support you to that? That is the kind of thing I think now needs to talk about because clearly everything that we've been trying has been tilted to once, one place, and one understands the risk adversity of business and capital, even the people who are running government, because maybe they've shown flames over time. But I think there's also an opportunity now to try a new way um, yeah. of inclusion. Yeah. And that's what we've got to um, So, and I'll, I'll end here, but I, I, can't, I can't go without asking your view on this, because you know, as you were breaking down um, the way that these relief funds um, have actually just strengthen the already existing economy, which, which is so fascinating to me because that's not how they've been framed at all. Um, the addition to that is that all that has also become a certain amount of debt. So not only have we not helped the vulnerable, but we've now, we're now in a worse fiscal position than we were before. And of course, this is in the context of, of uh, an approach to the IMF for a roughly 70 billion rand loan through their rapid financing instrument. So what's your view on this IMF loan? And um, do you think that it's, it's a, a source of stability in the short term that's worth taking? Or do you think that there are risks uh, involved with incurring this? this <laughs> they're, huge. they're huge. Anytime you borrow money, okay. you better have a plan. 
payback. Uh, and it has not been shared. So uh, when we were borrowing it, it was to support the COVID-19. So basically we said, uh, we need to borrow this money because we have a problem and we're going to take that money and we're going to invest it in such a way, not to buy PPE as we do, but mm. invest in such a manner that it will actually support growth and recovery from the PPE. Now, if you imagine what I've already said about what we, how we invest money and how we think about mm. investing money, I don't give very much confidence in that it's going to really come back in the middle of the thing it's going to come back so that it can cover itself. So then we are in a situation, in a very grave situation, in which obviously then your autonomy is given up because at some point when you are unable to pay, then somebody, your banker, dictates how you should live. Uh, mm-hmm. you should so unless we really are, we have an agent about how we do that money, and I suspect, uh, you know, we already know that, you know, some of the money has been thrown into the deep ocean that is SAA uh, and other mm-hmm. kinds of things. Like that. So the point is really to say, and one of the biggest problems in South Africa is that, um, it, you know, we measure everything, of course, as debt to GDP, by which we mean how much debt you have. GDP is production, which is means income. So how much of your debt is, do you owe over the income that you make? Mm-hmm. So when you say 90%, when we say 90% to GDP, we say 90% of what we, uh, uh, we actually owe 90 out of 100 of the income that we make. So basically, 90, uh, of, out of the 100 rand, of every rand we make, 90 cents is already debt. That's the danger we are already now facing. And unless we change the ways in which, of course, to pay for that debt, we need people to have the income to be taxed. South Africa has a very low tax base because of a low, very high unemployment. And that means unless we change that feature of people producing and being employed, not the economy itself growing, but employed, so that people then can be able to be taxed and uh, to pay their dues uh, in terms of a society that, that uh, is potentially one that is successful. And then we can pay that back. So unless we grow employment, unless we are able to, product, to be more productive, we are not going to be able to pay that money. And that's the danger then we face, because then what do we do? We default. And that's you know, and might, uh, something that even the mind doesn't want to mm. imagine. Well, uh, Tandi, I just want to thank you so much for coming on SMWX, for sharing your insights with our audience uh, and schooling us on, on some, some economics. Um, and hopefully, hopefully we can have you back one of these days. No, of course. Uh, thank you very much. I'd be very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm very happy. As well as commenting all those things, I was waiting my turn. <laughs> and you didn't pull a, pull a Zuma by, by running away from oh. the question. So. <laughs> <laughs> no. Thanks very much. But maybe not Thanks next a lot. Time. <laughs> okay. I hear you.